Hi, this is Dr. Chuck Betters, and I want to thank you for picking up this resource, and you're going to be blessed by it, I know for sure. Mark Inc. Ministries uh, exist for the very purpose of offering help and hope to hurting people. Sharon and I have lost our son, Mark, uh, back in 1993, and from that, the ministry has been birthed. And we have seen over the years many, many hundreds, perhaps thousands of people who have been touched and blessed by the resources Mark Inc. offers. In this latest resource, we are helping young people to understand some of the issues that they're facing. We have a whole series of interviews we have conducted, and this one today is very special. If you are a parent or if you're a young person, you you know that We are only one mistake away from changing our lives or one bad mistake away from ruining our lives. And uh, we have a personal testimony of that truth here today with our guest, Matthew Mayer. And Matt grew up in a very strong Christian home, and he's one of these kids that we might say was very successful, uh, successful in school. He excelled in sports. Matt, I believe you received a scholarship to Temple University. It's one of my favorite schools. And you actually had a contract to play professional soccer. But on March the 7th, 2009, you made a decision that altered the course of your life. And we're going to talk a lot about that decision. And it involved uh, you with a drinking and driving matter and you actually caused a fatal accident that day. And you were charged with aggravated manslaughter and sentenced to, I think, five and a half years in prison, five years in prison. But now you have dedicated your life to sharing this story with young people everywhere. And I appreciate, we appreciate so very much the fact that you're willing to share it here with us on Mark Inc. Ministries. You're an avid blog writer and developing resources of your own to send all over the world. And we'll talk about those in just a moment. So Matt, I want to welcome you. I thank you for your willingness to be here. I thank you for uh, your wife, Sarah. I thank you for your willingness to be here and spend some time with us and just to enjoy the fellowship around these microphones, but more importantly, to talk to young people, to talk to that one young man, that one young woman who perhaps doesn't think something like this could happen to them. Maybe they think that this is one of those things where this happens to other people, but never to me. And they're one bad decision away from uh, having their lives altered forever. So why don't we start by you talking a little bit about your childhood. Tell us about the family you were raised in and a little bit about your childhood. Sure thing. First of all, thank you, Dr. and Mrs. Betters, for having my wife and I here. We are honored to be here. Always honored to share my story. And really, you you nailed it with my my upbringing, my past. It was marked by good decisions. From as early as I can remember, I'm the youngest of four boys, so I followed in their footsteps, whether it be academically or athletically. And I, I watched what they did, what they succeeded at, and even what they failed at. And I tried to be a learner f- from their experiences. Had two well-known parents in the community. My father's a career man, law enforcement to be specific. My mother was a stay-at-home mom, so she practically raised me and my three older brothers and a lot of different resources out there that raised us, I don't say, in the church I say they raised us in Christ. They raised us with a faith foundation. So with that being said, and being a sports-driven family, we kind of took our faith foundation and we 
made it appropriate and applicable to the secular world. We were always involved with public community outreach programs, always involved with public recreation, sporting events. So here you have a family that was prominent in the community because of my father's position in law enforcement. My mother, who was vocal on many fronts, her belief system, and then you have these four boys and very athletic, so it wasn't rare to see one of us or two of us in the same newspaper on any given day. Where were you in the birth order? I am the youngest of those four boys. So you could say I got the best of all those worlds. And, you know, some of that was good and admirable. And some of that was a little dangerous and, and uh, would push the edge. So they beat up on you a little bit, did they? They beat up on me. But you know what? It, it grew character in me early on. I was tough. I was a, a student of people. I would watch all of their older friends come through the house. I would listen to the language they spoke. And I would try to emulate or imitate their behaviors and their sayings. I remember so many stories my mom would regurgitate, like, you would say the most off-the-wall things, Matthew, and I would wonder where you heard that phrase or that expression. Or, And then I realized you were just imitating the older brothers that were coming into the house. So um, life was good. Family. Your father was a pl- uh, chief of police, wasn't he? He's a retired chief of police, but he spent a majority of his career in law enforcement specifically. He's still in a form of law enforcement now. He's the undersheriff of Cape May County. So he kind of stopped that career as a a chief of police, and he's now the sheriff of Cape May County. So we knew what was right and wrong based on who our father was and what he taught us, and he instilled early on the principles of accountability, integrity, respect others, respect law enforcement, respect everybody. So we governed our lives based on that, and it wasn't uncommon for families or even acquaintances in the community to say they're very respectable boys. Um, But I guess the, the turn of the story or my story individually takes its twist when I began to excel at a rate quicker than my brothers. As a young teenager, I'm playing several years up in sports. I'm getting all A's on my report card easily. So I found myself kind of taking that lifestyle for granted and being successful to a fault where you think it comes so easily. And, you know, I can look back in my high school career with academics or even athletics, whether it was soccer or basketball even, and, and realized that I did not give it my all. I kind of devalued and depreciated the gifts that I was given and the opportunities that I had. And I really can trace the decision that you prefaced this interview with. I could trace that decision back to those days, and I would call it complacency. So to the young person that's listening out there, you know, the most dangerous place to be, I say, is complacency. It's when you're taking life for granted, regardless of your economic situation. When you look around and you always either want what somebody else has or you're not satisfied with what you have and you become complacent. And that complacency takes you to a place that you never thought you would be. And I, my, my life is a case study of that. I heard you refer to it once as the blindness of pride. Mm. You want to explain that? Yeah. And again, one of those things you look back in your life, you say, not only was I good at everything, and I think the pride of life crept in. Now you're feeling a sense of entitlement. Everywhere you go, people know who you are. You're the one succeeding. You're the one accomplishing. You're getting all the trophies, all the prizes, all the awards, and you take it for granted, but then you also have your chest swell up. And the Bible says pride comes before fall. So pride was what lifted me up so high. And I never gave God glory for the things he had given me. And I glorified me. And I, I think about it now, and I want to share with that, that young person out there, really, who um, they find themselves, their, their highlight reel, essentially, is their social media. 
and what you put out today, you kind of filter it, you control it, and people only see what you want them to see. Well, when I think about it, before Instagram even existed, when I was in high school, the newspaper was my Instagram reel, was my highlight reel. And not, anybody, not everybody had that opportunity to be in the newspaper for sports. And I think about it now, those were the pics that I loved that people liked, if you're making the connection. And I got caught up with that hype. And I allowed that hype to drive me. And of course, there was a lot of positive that came out of that discipline, feeding into the hype. But there was also a lot more negative. Um, I think really coming out of high school, believing that everything was about me, the world revolved around me, still succeeding academically in college, Temple University, as you said, and even succeeding on the athletic field. Soccer was the sport that I chose. I got a full scholarship to play a sport. Again, not appreciating where I was and what I had. And it just got worse and worse. You eventually, you received a call to professional sports, if I'm not mistaken? Correct. Humbly, I was drafted as a first-round draft pick in my senior year. And my brother, Anthony, who was about three to four years older than me, he was already playing professional soccer. So I had his life to watch and his footsteps to follow in. So I knew one day with the gifting that I had that I would play professional soccer. And again, it's one of those things where most kids aspire to that. That's like a dream. Not for me. It was something I knew was going to happen. There was a there was a time <clears throat> in our life when a young girl who came from a troubled home, and I was trying to counsel her a little bit, move her along in how to respond to the, the crises that were going on in her home. She kind of chirped at me at that point and said, your life is so perfect. You come from a perfect family. And in fact, she even said, you're the leave it the beaver family. And from the outside, from looking uh, from the outside in, that may have been the way it appeared. And we really did have a, a good family and a good life with our kids and what have you. But then something happened in our home and we suffered a great loss. And I believe you have something similar to share. Yes, uh, obviously can empathize with where you guys sit, not as parents, but I lost an older brother in 2005. His name was John. And you just summed it up perfectly. If from the outside looking in, it was the perfect American family. They had it all. They were accomplishing. Father and mother love each other, married for X amount of years, married to this day, four upstanding boys. But when you peel away those layers, there was so much going on, whether it was the small stuff with bad attitudes and disrespect, or even my oldest brother starting to play in the world of drugs, smoking marijuana, and then that would lead to something worse. And then the, the call from the police station, we got your son in here, it's nothing serious, but come pick him up. And my father's in law enforcement, we remind you that the bad look from the outside looking in, where now it wasn't nothing too serious, but John's life took a turn for the worse probably coming out of high school and into college and being on his own for the first time. And he started to hang out with the wrong crowd, bad company, corrupts good habits. And, and again, there's lessons to be told there, watching who you spend your time with, being mindful who you lend your ear to. And even as a, a high school student, a young person out there, you got to stop, step back and figure out who are you spending time with? Who are you giving access to your life? Who's speaking into your life? Who are you trusting that could possibly be leading you down the wrong path? There's so many lessons there, but my brother, he never probably stopped and heeded the crowd that he was spending time with. Against the advisement from my parents, they were always the first to love and accept and give him grace, modeled after our Heavenly Father and modeled after our faith. But John, he just, it seems like he didn't get it. And I know that he struggled with depression. 
he got discouraged easier than me and my other brothers. It was like he was the brother, the oldest, that got overlooked. So instead of us celebrating his life, it, it just feels like a lot of people in our community were celebrating me and my other two brothers' lives. And John was always the proud older brother, but that has to do something to somebody. It has to do something to their personality. Very long story short, I was at Temple University going into my senior year. It was about December of 2005, and I left the marketing final, and my cell phone rang, and it was my mother, and I was excited to tell her I'd be home soon. I just aced my marketing final. Everything's good. You're going home for a Christmas break. College student out there, you look forward to that long 30-day winter break. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of the phone, I heard sobbing. And then I heard my mother, through a cracked, crying voice, say, he's dead. And I knew who she was talking about in that moment. It needed no explanation or description. I knew exactly who she was talking about, only because of the trace of his life at that point. It was only a matter of time. And I hurried home. I packed bags, went home. And instead of planning parties and, and Christmas celebrations, we were planning a funeral. And I, can, I could say that was one of the hardest times uh, for my family as a whole, burying a brother, burying a son. And here's the compounded pain part. He just had a baby girl about four months prior in August of 2005. So here you have a girl whose father is no longer with her and would never know her daddy. And she's 11 years old to this day. So there is life and there is hope and there is unbelievable triumph out of such a tragedy. There really is. How did he die? He passed away. The, the death certificate would say, and it would be misleading and confusing if you didn't, didn't know the backstory, drug-induced hypothermia, drug-induced hypothermia. And what happened was on that fateful night, he went out and he was deciding to sell drugs again and even using drugs again. It was a vulnerable time in his life. Again, he just had a daughter. He was stressing about how he was going to make ends meet. And he went out and sold drugs, got pulled over. And the cop basically checked on him. Nothing was wrong. He was on the side of the road, gave him his license and registrations back. And then he, the cop went on his regular route. Several hours later, the cop came back. That vehicle was still in the same position. He found that my brother was in the vehicle unresponsive, knocked on the window, non, no response, broke the window, called the paramedics. They found him dead. So it took a while for us to even realize what happened. There was no harm done. He just was there dead. And based on the toxicology report and the autopsy, they found that when the cop pulled him over, he most likely would have swallowed the drugs that he had. And they, it was cocaine, bags of cocaine called eight balls. And one of them broke in his stomach. And the drug or the cocaine entered his bloodstream, which caused him to have a euphoric effect, feeling high, if you're listening. And his car died. And December 15, 2005 was the coldest night of the year. So the drug made him feel warm, but the cold of the night is what killed him, ultimately. Drug-induced hypothermia. Now, you were raised in a home where... Uh, values were important, where values were kind of front and center? Were you raised in a church home or? Raised in a church home, values were front and center. We did a nightly Bible study every night with the entire family. Church was priority, even with sports. If I traveled on a Sunday for soccer, which was every week, we would either have a family church Bible study in the morning before the trip, or we would go to the earliest service possible. So this was a, a lifestyle of me and my older brothers, modeled by my parents. They rarely had to tell us things. We watched them. They, emu they, they literally exemplified the values and the principles that they wanted us to strive for. Now, while you were at Temple, 
playing soccer in their four years, four years or five years at Temple? Four years at Temple. Uh, during that time, what, what was what was your faith walk like? Excellent question. You know, again, that complacency word followed me into my Temple days. I was attending FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. That's an extracurricular activity or group or organization on most college campuses in America. And I was a leader in that group. I would pray with my soccer teammates before games, after games. I would read my Bible and I would go to church services. I was also part of Campus Crusade for Christ before they became crew. So again, from the outside, he's a Christian, but there wasn't fruit in my life. My behaviors often contradicted the faith that I proclaimed. Did I became, you know that? Did you feel that? Could you experience that? Yeah, you know it, but you, you kind of just suppress it and you think, well, I'm not as bad as the next person. And you know what? I'm not out there smoking. I'm not out there drinking heavily, um, succeeding on the athletic field. I'm getting good grades. You know, everything's good. So you're pushing this limit. You're, 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 you're stepping over a boundary that you're not even thinking is going to come back and harm you one day. You're realizing, hey, if I can get away with these things and I'm not as bad as the next guy and I'm still succeeding in, in every area of life, what's the harm? You know, there was no conviction. There was no Christian conviction in my heart. I knew the Bible verses that I was raised on. I could memorize scripture. I could regurgitate it. I could preach it like a pastor, but it never sunk into my heart. And I just realized that the complacency and the pride mingled together was a, a concoction that would eventually lead to disaster. And that disaster in my personal life, unfortunately and sadly, was a huge, huge decision that I made that affected not just my life, not just my family's life. Before we before we get into that decision that you made, I know many parents who have raised their kids in the church, raised their kids with Bible studies and home devotions and all of that, and their kids just go off astray somewhere. And the parents find themselves loaded with guilt, where they're wondering, what did we do wrong? How, how, did, we, how did we miss the boat on this one? Did your parents go through that? Yeah, my mother especially. I know my father. My, my father's a little bit more uh, introvert, um, outspoken when necessary. My mother being very vocal, and she expressed those emotions, how she did everything she possibly could do to raise me and my three older brothers, my father included. And I'm sure there was this wrestling match between the way she did it and the outcome. The outcome did not line up with what she knew and what she taught and what she thought. She often says, that's not the way I prayed for it. That's not the end to that prayer. And, and I realize now more than ever that they were the perfect godly examples to me and my brothers. And if there's any parent out there and you're saying, I'm doing all the right things and my child is still not listening, your responsibility as a parent is not to produce godly children. Your responsibility as a parent is to be godly parents. And I would say that emphatically and boldly that my parents were godly parents. And, and there was nothing better they could have done than instill in me and my brothers all the values that they did. Parents can't change a child's heart. Cannot change the child's heart, cannot change the decisions that they make. You can, you can influence them, and that's your responsibility to influence them. But at the end of the day, the child, the student, is going to make their own decisions. But that's not the end. The end doesn't... It, the way the parents conduct themselves in response to a child that does not make that right decision that you wanted them to make, it doesn't end there. There's so many lessons to be made and even a great failure. 
and my parents were the first in my own life, and even as my brother John um, went home to be with the Lord, they were the first ones to teach us valuable lessons, even through these tragedies and these failures. Shortly after you lost John, you made a decision that would change your life. Yes, sir. Why don't you tell us about that? That took place after Temple University. We've entered into the year of 2009. I was a professional soccer player beginning my third season. Again, to most people, that is a life that many athletes want to aspire to. They want to pursue. And I, again, I took it for granted. I'm on a professional soccer team being paid to play a sport in front of thousands of people, signing autographs. I'm a young 20-some-year-old kid, and I don't realize the blessing of where I am, always looking for what's next, never taking um, never taking the time to just be still and realize how blessed I was. And there's a kind of background story before I tell you the main part of the story, and it kind of is, is related. It's never an excuse, and I always tell this not as an excuse. If this had not happened, I wouldn't have done this. I probably would have done it regardless of this happening, but it plays a part, and I'll explain why. On March 1st, 2009, in my last professional soccer game I would ever play in, I tore my ACL and my meniscus, two ligaments in my knee. And to any soccer player, that's a career-ending injury, potentially. It's a year in recovery. You're not ever the same. It's an emotional and mental injury as much as it is a physical injury. And I suffered that injury on a Sunday. Through the week, obviously it was confirmed via MRI that surgery was required for repair. That's on my mind, of course. My older brother, Anthony, was also on the team I played for in Philadelphia. He was also a professional soccer player, and he encouraged me. I'll never forget it. He told me to keep my head up. He suffered the same injury earlier in his career. You're going to get through this. You're going to conquer this. And he encouraged me the best he could. But I remember it just being, it took up a large space in my mind. And many think that as that happened, that I got depressed and I got discouraged. But I'm, to tell you the truth, it was opposite. I got entitled. I felt well, if this went wrong, you know what? I'm, I'm deserving of something better happening. And instead of staying in on a Friday night where my team was traveling the next day to Baltimore, I went out and about in the city of Philadelphia with friends with no plan. And if you don't have a plan, here's the saying, you fail to plan, then you plan to fail. And I had drinks with friends, got into my vehicle after a long night, headed onto the Atlantic City Expressway, where I was involved in an at-fault drunk driving fatality, and it resulted in the death of the driver in the other vehicle. Did you know initially after the accident that the uh, other person was, was killed in the accident, or did that eventually come to you that this was a fatality? Did not know in the moment, trying to rehash the, the vivid memories and trying to really remember what I saw and what I felt. And the honest answer is, I, in the moment, was in shock, confused. You just were in a, a motor vehicle collision on, an, on a highway. I come to rest on the side of the road, shooken up a bit. OnStar in my vehicle is communicating with me. I'm talking back to them. My friend, I had a, I had a passenger with me. He was one of my very good friends, and he's, little, he's panicked and shook up. I'm talking to him. We both exit the vehicle, and there's debris, and there's gas smelling everywhere and glass everywhere. And, and it's in that moment you're, you're trying to realize what just happened. You're trying to wrap your mind around what, what, what just took place. And cars were pulling over. And I saw the vehicle I struck with about 30 yards back. And as I noticed this vehicle, I saw four individuals standing outside of the vehicle. And in the moment, I reasoned and I, I thought 
they're the passengers. They're fine. That's the driver. Everybody's fine here. And I kind of just sat down on the guardrail waiting for the police to respond. And they were there within minutes. The state police barracks that responded to this particular incident was only a mile and a half up the road. So we're talking minutes in response. And I'm in custody before I know it. So now my thought process in a jail cell is, all right, I totaled vehicles. I'm going to have to pay for the damage. I'm fine. My passenger's fine. The other driver and the passengers are fine. Man, this is terrible because I'm going to get a DUI. I'm going to get a driving under the influence ticket. And I thought about all the consequences. In the moment, the consequences that came with a DUI ticket, I was a legal studies major at Temple University. So this wasn't foreign to me. I literally rattled off in my mind, I'm going to lose my license. My insurance is going to shoot up. I'm going to pay fines. I'm going to pay for vehicles. But I say that's the extent of the consequences that I thought about. Never in a million years could I have imagined that somebody was hurt or even worse, dead. And I began to became, become very attentive in that jail cell. And I watched a police kind of stopping and looking in. I, I reasoned, I thought, maybe they know who my father is. Maybe they're just checking up on me. And over time, I overheard a conversation that was right around the corner of the jail cell. It was the dispatch center. Couldn't see them, but I could hear them. And through a muffled radio sound, I heard the dispatch center communicate to the police who responded to the scene and they said this, and this is exactly what I heard, I'll never forget it. They said, accident on the Atlantic City Expressway is currently being cleaned up. I remember listening. The driver in the black Escalade, they said, is in custody. The driver in the town and country is deceased. And it was right there where one, I went into denial. I convinced myself that what I just heard wasn't true and that it wasn't applied to what I did because I was there and I saw the other people and everybody was fine. And But it got real as the night went on. I wish I could verbalize those emotions. I remember my heart falling into my stomach, got nauseous. They took me out of the jail cell several hours later. They took me to the hospital to do a routine blood test and other checkups. And I asked the officer straight up, I said, I'm sorry, may I ask you a question? He said, yes. I said, was the other driver in my accident, is he alive? And he said, I can't tell you that. They will brief you at the station. It was right there that I knew that it was true. And I, I, I don't remember much except for the interrogation and the questions. I don't remember the next several hours. It's all a blur to me. Did your parents make their way to the police station at that point? Yeah, my father was... And what was his reaction? Pretty unbelievable, actually. He got the phone call from one of his associates saying there was an accident. Matthew was involved. Alcohol was involved. We're not sure who the fatality is, but it's not your son. So he came not sure if it was my passenger that was deceased or if the driver involved was deceased. And I'll never forget it. We got done several hours of an interrogation with the police officers and they were asking me all the questions, the questions you could never even imagine. What did you eat that day? What time did you wake up? Who did you talk to? Tell me about that. Everything you can imagine, they're writing down. And I was forthright. I told them everything. I had nothing to hold back. And at the end of the conversation, a secretary came in and she said, Chief John Mayer's here. And she looked at me and said, his father. And they all looked at me and almost simultaneously said, are you kidding me? Your father is Chief John Mayer. Your father's in law enforcement. And it was like, they could not believe that I did not tell them that fact. And I remember saying, well, what difference would it have made? I wasn't going to be in there as a little brat saying, my daddy's a cop. I knew exactly where I was. I knew exactly what this reflected. I knew that this looked bad on him. So the worst thing I could do is drag his name through the mud even more. But he walked into the room. He looked at all the law enforcement officials. He gave them the respect due. But then he did something that I'll never forget. He came over to me where I was sitting down at the table and he kissed me on my forehead and he said, we're going to get through this, son. 
Then he turned to the professionals in the room and he said, what are we looking at? And I realized in that moment, I couldn't have done anything worse. Took somebody's life recklessly, irresponsibly, yet my father still showed love. That is completely humbling to me. Was your mother there? My mother was not there. Mother, in fact, was completely unaware of the severity of the situation. All she knew was Matthew was in an accident and he was drinking. So in her mind, I'm in a car by myself. I was drinking somewhere and I crashed into a tree, but I'm fine. And she is in a rage. She's going to let me have it when I get home. She knows I know better. How could I? And she's going through her mind what she's going to say to me. What she failed to understand was there was a complete other person involved, a whole other vehicle. She never even thought of that. So my father protecting her didn't want to tell her. My father called her brother, which is my uncle, immediately when he found out and said, are you able to come with me somewhere? So my uncle came with my father to the police station and his daughter, who's my cousin, which is my mother's niece, I know that might be confusing, she ran over to our house and was there with my mom. And almost simultaneously when we pulled up, my cousin was running into the house, checking on my mom, and my mom was like, what's going on? Like, is everything okay? And at the same time, my uncle walks into the door as I'm kind of gathering myself in the vehicle and says, and the other driver, he didn't make it. And my mom said she went in the shock. She had no idea that there was another person involved. And I followed my, my uncle within a minute. So I, I walk into the house and I'll never forget what she said. She looked at me and she never reminds me sharing this because this just shows you the raw emotion that would come out of a mother in a moment like that. Now, let me just preface this before I say it. She loves me unconditionally. She loves me. I'm a youngest son. She loved all of her boys. But she looked me in the eyes and she said, it should have been you. And when, when, I, when I asked her, when people asked her, how could you say that? She said, she already lost a son. She knew what that felt like. It would have been easier to lose another son than to struggle and suffer with the idea that my son took somebody else's life. And I get that. I do. And I didn't go up into my room and how could my mom say that? I deserved those words in that moment. I deserved to feel the consequences and the repercussions and the disappointment and how I let everybody down. I mean, that is part of my story. Those consequences are part of my story, and they're real and they're raw, and they cannot be ignored and they cannot be justified. What were the charges? I uh, wasn't charged immediately. I was, I was released from the police station to my father's custody with a DUI charge and a seatbelt ticket. And, and you may be listening and say, really, that's it? Well, they have to do their accident investigation, the accident reconstruction. It could take weeks. It took about two weeks, and they discovered that, one, I was under the influence. I did cause the, the collision, and I would be charged with first-degree aggravated manslaughter. Um, and that's one of the highest charges you can get in the judicial system. It carries a 10 to 30-year state prison time in New Jersey, which is where it occurred, it comes with a mandatory sentencing. So there was nothing that anybody could do. I was guilty from the onset and took responsibility from the onset. So two weeks later, they came to my house to take me into custody. I wasn't there. I was in Philadelphia doing rehab on my knee because the surgery happened the week after. So we're talking March 1st toward the, the knee. March 7th was when I went out and caused the motor vehicle collision and the fatality. March 12th is when I had my knee repaired. So what a crazy, painful, and, and just devastating month, March of 2009. How long before you were on trial? And what was the trial like? I was going through the legal system and the process early on. Once they bring those charges, I turned myself in. I was released on bail 
and you kind of wait. It's a waiting game. You're waiting for the official charges. You're waiting for anything else that comes up. And on October 7th, 2009, so exactly seven months later, I signed my plea bargain. So pre-indictment, I did not feel that it was necessary, obviously, to take it to trial, to plead not guilty. I was guilty, and whatever the justice system found fitting for my decision, I was going to accept it and be accountable to it. So on October 7, 2009, I signed my plea bargain to first-degree aggravated manslaughter. And at that time, it carried the weight of 10 to 30 years in state prison. Through that process, sentencing day was established, which was January 7, 2010. That would come 10 months exactly to the day from March 7, 2009, that night. And it was on that day where the judge would use his discretion to sentence me not to the first degree, but to the second degree. So I went into court that day knowing that I was looking at up to 10 years in state prison um, with a, a low range of five years. So my lawyer prompted and prepared me saying, you're most likely, Matthew, going to get seven years. The judge will most likely pick the middle range for what you did. So I went in expecting to get seven years in state prison. The judge, based on the circumstances and and the legal criteria, basically gave me mercy. Mercy, in, in fact, he should have gave me 10. Seven would have been you know, the going rate for that particular crime in that particular county. He gave me five and a half years and I would serve 85% of that term. Tell me what it was like standing before the judge waiting for your sentence. What was going through your mind? As I go around and speak to students now all over the place, public schools, Christian schools, I, I really stop at this moment. I talk about what it felt like, and I, I kind of throw a curveball at what they think I was thinking or feeling. And I say, I met with lawyers, and they told me how much time I was going to get. And I would say, would you believe me if I told you guys that I wasn't worried about that? And everybody's looking at me like, no way. And I said, well... Would you believe me if I told you something else was going on in my heart, in my life, that deserved all my emotions, deserved all my attention? And I said I sat with guys that worked in prisons, corrections officers, friends of the family, guys that did time, that knew what it was like to be an inmate, and they would tell me what it looked like, the horror stories, the violence. And I would leave these meetings, and I would think about what they said, and I would struggle with, was prison as violent as movies depict it? Were these stories accurate? Am I going to have to watch my back in the shower? All these crazy stories, and I've honestly... I would turn to the students as I'm speaking. I'd say, would you believe me if I told you I wasn't worried about that either? And they would all shake their head. And some even say verbally in the middle of the presentation, no, they yell out. And most people think, yeah, there's no way. You're definitely thinking about those things. But the truth is there was only one thought on my mind. It was what would I say? How would I express my remorse, my sorrow? How would I address them? And that was the only thing that I was thinking about. So when I went into court, I knew the judge would have his say. I knew the prosecutor would have his say. I knew people would speak on my behalf. The only thing that I was concerned with was what would I say to this family? How can I apologize to them for killing their father? Those emotions are inexpressible. I cannot do them justice, but I can say without a shadow of a doubt that my only concern was to address them with the respect they deserved. Even if they would not want to hear it, I knew that I had to share it and I had to say, I had to seek forgiveness. And I, I pled with them through tears. I am sorry. I will do whatever I can to honor your father and his name. And for the rest of my life, the good that I do will be in memory of him. And I, and I turned to the judge and I apologized to him for having to sit on a judge, uh, sit in a seat where he has to render down decisions based on what somebody else did. And I was very apologetic and, and I sat down. And um, it felt like there was a, a huge burden lifted when I was able to express how sorry I was and, and, and ask for forgiveness. But what took place after is, is truly miraculous. You see, through the process, the family 
of my victim. His name's Hort Cap. He was a 55-year-old man from Cambodia. Uh, father, obviously. Some of his children got to speak on his behalf. And his daughter got up and she talked about who her daddy was and how he was an awesome father and a hard worker. And it was very moving. And then the son got up. His oldest son, his name's Noon. And Noon began to yell at the top of his lungs. And through anguish and pain, he began to point at me and he began to say, you destroyed my world. Do you have any idea what this feels like? And I remember sitting at my desk at this table and crumbling on the inside and pleading to God, saying, no, no, Lord, don't let it end like this, please. And in the moment that he's at his highest volume yelling at me, he stopped mid-sentence. It seemed as if a composure came over him. The entire courtroom, you could hear a hush go over them. Nobody knew what was going to happen next. And Nuni turned to me and he said, but I forgive you, my brother. And he came walking over. The bailiff told me I could rise, and I stood up, and I was right there in the courtroom where we hugged and embraced like brothers. And I whimpered and cried in his ear, and I said, I am so sorry. And it was that day, I, I tell people, the day that I was physically incarcerated was the day that I was spiritually liberated, and there was no looking back from that day forward. Did the accident and the tragedy that ensued, did, did it haunt you? I, I just received that question, actually. Somebody was asking, you know, what is it like waking up? And yeah, it does. I'll, there are random times where I'll think about what I did, and I'm almost in shock and confused. Like, did I really do that? Did that really happen? But then the other side of that thought process always ends with my faith. And I realize that what I did and, and what I'm responsible for, though it happened, there has been a purpose in it. And I'm not saying there was a purpose in me causing great pain. I'm saying based on my faith, that God takes our messes, He takes our mistakes, He takes our failures, big or small, and He makes something beautiful out of them. And the beauty came in the form of forgiveness to me, and the beauty comes in the message that I deliver to people all over the place from all ages about how there is purpose and there is life on the other side of tragedy. Well, our God majors in redeeming pain, doesn't He? Yes, He does. You talk about the uh, reaction to you while you were incarcerated from the other prisoners. Want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so you get two sides to this story. I come into a, a world I never thought I'd be in, and being the youngest of four boys, I was a little bit more street smart, so I wasn't like wet behind the ears going into a setting. I knew how to conduct myself, and I was an athlete, so I was confident and bold, and going into a, a place like that, it worked in favor and disfavor. The favor came when the inmates found out I was a professional athlete. They were just starstruck by that. So there was respect and there was all there. And, you know, I learned to use that to my advantage. I learned to leverage that to influence people positively, to influence people for my faith. The disfavor came from some inmates who thought, well, you got it made. You come from a good family. You don't know where I've been. And they want to take that out on you. And they want to show you that they are... Um, they are completely against what you represent, even a smile on your face. And they want to show you otherwise. If you smile at them, they're going to show you. There's nothing to smile about in prison. Then the guards, same thing, officers that were uh, pulling me aside to ask about soccer drills to put their children through and a lot of favor there. And then the other part of that, the guards that hated me because of who I was or we know your father's in law enforcement or you're, you're not getting any entitlement in here. And I wasn't looking for any, but you had to navigate these uncharted territories and you didn't know who you could trust initially. It was a very volatile environment, very violent place, very board-driven place. So when you get men together with idle minds, idle hands, that is the, the recipe for calamity. Yeah. You had a relationship with uh, someone who 
along with the two of you. The two of you actually conducted Bible studies. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Jason? Remarkably, yeah. I found myself incarcerated. I was there first in in January of 2010. He showed up later, February 2010. So we ended up on the same housing block, Unit 2 East, and it was former professional basketball player of the NBA, Jason Williams. Played with the New Jersey Nets in the 90s, and Jason and I, we got together very quickly, got along very quickly, same personalities, similar backgrounds as professional athletes, both Christians, and we linked up and we began a Bible study, and we started to study God's Word every morning, and we invited guys to it, and they would just look at us and keep walking, and that study turned into me and him sharing stories and and sharpening each other to a third guy joining and him sharing and talking, and then a fourth guy, and then before we know it, there's eight guys sitting at a table every day to learn the Bible, and Jason and I would teach out of it every single day, and then it grew to 16 guys out of a 38-men housing unit. Then it got to 28 guys, and now we are the majority 30-some guys are gathering every day to hold hands and pray and to learn out of God's Word. And you would say, this is such a beautiful thing, unbelievable. And the guards appreciated it because we were making the housing unit respectable and peaceable and the fights were no longer as belligerent and they were no longer as common. And that's not the whole story. See, the other part of the story is certain officers and certain supervisors, they despise anything good. And you would think that wouldn't be the case, but... The only way I can rationalize their attempts to belittle the study or divide the study or shut down the study is to say that our successes in the institution or even our smiles on our face was apparently showing their ineffectiveness in their own lives. I don't know if you're coming in as an officer and you're free and you got inmates who are smiling more than you are and they're saying good morning to you. I don't know what that does to people, but I witnessed what it did to one particular supervisor. And her attempt every day was to shut down the Bible study. She'd come in and she would curse at us and she would say, there is no God. And she would belittle our faith. And she would try to find things that we were doing inappropriately to write us up. And she never found anything. We were conducting ourselves above reproach as inmates of the state. And we but knew she did shut you down, didn't she? She did. You know what? She went to the warden and, and she basically told him that Inmate Williams and inmate Mayer have too much influence amongst the general population. And that's truth. We did. But it was all for the good. And he said, well, if you think that you're the manpower sergeant, which means you control all movements, you think that that's going to you know, cause some conflict in movements, then do what you got to do. And they chose to move me out of the two of us because Jason is a six foot 11 man and his bed was extended. So they didn't want to make a new bed upstairs. And I'll never forget the day the officer came and said, Mayor, you're, you're, you're moving upstairs. And just moving upstairs is not just moving to another part of the prison. It was moving to the worst part of the prison upstairs. Everybody knew it. You don't see those guys. It's a whole different clientele. A lot of violent inmates get moved upstairs. A lot of gang members are moved upstairs. And here I find myself doing all the right things, thinking I'm serving God, and now I'm being moved upstairs. And I had a conversation with him on the way up. And I remember saying, are you kidding me, God? I was down there serving. I'm preaching your word. I'm teaching. I'm influencing. I'm loving. I'm compassionate. Why am I having this happen to me? And I didn't know what lied ahead. And only God knows that. And and there's a lesson there when we just sit back and just trust, even when it doesn't look like it's going to be good, God always makes it look and come to be good. What was the seven, seven East? Seven East. I got moved on a seven East, same setup as downstairs, but you could already feel the eerie feeling. The lights were the same, but I always describe it as it felt darker. Same type of inmate of the state, except a little bit more hostile. 
And I moved on and nobody gave me a greeting. Nobody cared who I was. And, you know, the leveraging comes into play when they found out, is Jason Williams really downstairs, they would say? You just came from downstairs? I'm like, yeah. Is he really down there? I'm like, yeah, he's really down there. What tier is he on? I was like, well, the tier I just left. You were on the same tier as Jason Williams? Like, they could not believe that. I'm like, yeah. Then the rumor mill kicked up and they found out who I was. You're the professional soccer player we heard about. So there's favor that came there and respect. And, and I learned early on, wow, God has given me another opportunity up here to influence these men in an environment that was darker and more hopeless. And that first day, I struggled with, should I open the Word of God? Should I start my day the way I did downstairs? Should I invite people to learn the Bible with me? And I struggled and wrestled because I was like, why should I do that? And it came to the conclusion that that was the only alternative to, to hold on to the peace that I had and not struggle with where I was. It was to give it back to God. And when I gave it back to Him, I'll never forget, I heard Him say to me, take root where I've planted you. And I said, you know what? I'm going to start a Bible study on 7 East. And we did that just that. And just like downstairs, one study with one guy turned into four guys, the eight guys, 16 guys, to 20-some guys, again, flipping the entire environment of the housing unit for the name of God and no, the name of Jesus. Nowhere else to move you, huh? <laughs> they could have moved me <laughs> to another facility, but I guess at this point they just thought him and Jason are separated. That supervisor was satisfied. But I met another gentleman up there, and it, it, this is an interesting gentleman, and and it was very, to meet this particular guy in this particular setting, one, if I wasn't moved upstairs, what never happened? Two, the bed that he moved into should have not been vacant as long as it was. There was a fight on the housing unit. They moved the guy out, and this bed is open. And I've never seen a single bed open in prison for more than a day. I mean, before the sheets are even stripped, before the property's even moved out, they're moving somebody else in. It's unbelievable how quickly they do it. Well, one day goes by, the bed stays open. Two days go by, the bed stays open. Everybody's like, what is going on? Three days go by, the bed stays open. About the fourth day, this giant of a man walks onto the housing unit. He's a 330-pound man, and you can tell he's a force to be reckoned with. You could tell he's going to impose himself upon everybody, and he did just that. He did just that. He came onto the housing unit. He starts cursing up a storm. He throws his bag into his area. He goes to the back of the housing unit, and he sits down on a chair. And this is something you just don't do. Usually you unpack your stuff, you make your bed, and you kind of just sit there and learn the environment. Not him. His name was Little John, just to give you some ironic flavor to it. 330 pounds, Little John. And he goes to the back of the housing unit, and he begins to change the television. And it's just something you don't do in prison. You see, whoever runs the television with the one remote runs the housing unit. Or so they think, but it's usually a gang member and they're going to watch with their homies or their brothers, whatever they want to watch. And nobody touches the TV. And everybody knows that if you touch the TV, you're going to get jumped. You're going to get beat up. Not little John. Little John walks up and changes the channel and everybody on the housing unit froze. And what he put on would never be guessed in a million choices. Little John put on Animal Planet. And the reason he put on Animal Planet, which I find out later, was he wanted to see what everybody would do. And he sat there for the next two hours. Not a single person turned the channel nor said a word. And they all watched Animal Planet together. I got to know him after that. He was my neighbor. And um, I served him. I, I fed him every night if he didn't have a sandwich to eat. And he just kind of looked at me weird every time I would do that. I don't know if he thought that I was just feeding the biggest guy on the housing unit or if I was genuine in serving others. And he would listen to me teach the Bible every day. And he would ask questions. I'd come back into the area. He wouldn't come by no means. And he would say, you said this today. Is that true? And I'm like, yeah, right here in the Bible. That's pretty cool, man. And then the next day he'd ask another question. And I could tell the questions were getting deeper. I knew he was thinking. What I did not know was that for the several months that he was listening and watching was that he was waiting. And he was waiting for me to fail 
And he said he was waiting for me to curse and he was waiting for me to argue or get disrespectful or to complain or do something contrary to the Bible that I preached every day, that I taught every day. And he watched and he waited and he told me this. He looked me right in the face and said, you know what? I've been watching you, homeboy, and I was wanting you to fail so I can put that Bible in your face and say, you're nothing but a hypocrite. And then he stopped. He said, but you didn't give me that opportunity. I've never been more humbled to hear somebody say that, that he was watching me and wanting me to fail so that he could say that what you're doing, what you're living is not true. And by God's grace alone, I did not give him that opportunity. And he slowly but surely came to the Bible study, started asking questions. And that was the, the very ingredients that God was using to kind of chip at his hard heart. Didn't it bring something to mind that your mother used to say to you? It brought back a line that my mother used to say to me when I'd be flying out of the house as a teenager. I would be flying out of the house to go to a party or go to a sporting event. She would say, Matthew, and I would stop and I would turn around and she would, you may be the only Bible somebody reads. And I would say, okay, mom, and I'd head on my way. But that line came crashing into my soul in prison when I realized that little John was watching and reading me and I became the very Bible that he needed to read and that is almost like a theme of my life now. I teach all the students in my student group that line about you are accountable for your behaviors and your actions and never to shirk the responsibility of sharing the truth verbally of the gospel, but it starts by living it. And if people don't believe in what you believe in, they will be convinced by your conduct and your actions to never give them a reason to say you are a hypocrite. You have a book by that title, don't you? Do. Humbled again to be an author, which is something I never saw myself doing. I did not enjoy writing papers in college. In fact, I would often um, deploy my mother's writing ability to help me with those papers. So the fact that I'm in prison and I'm writing out thoughts daily, a, a journal style, a blog that we kept on a website that people were reading, that turned into me taking these thoughts and saying, I think I can write a manuscript. And I began to write on this concept about being the only Bible that some people may ever read. And little John himself writes the foreword to that particular book, which is pretty cool. You know, as I as we wrap this up, <clears throat> I'm sitting here thinking that there's somebody out there listening to this story. And they're saying, well, Matt, I'm, I'm really glad that all worked out for you. It sounds like you went to hell and back, but that's not, that's not normal. There had to be rocks along the way that you had to climb. Absolutely. You know, it isn't as you hear it and people would say, wow, that was so inspiring. And, um, you know, when you peel away a lot of these layers, you realize there was a wrestling match and a struggle from the very beginning, the onset. And I had to make a decision from as early as that calamity happened, March 7, 2009, to cast it where it belonged. And it belonged in the hands of the Lord. He's the only one that can make good out of it. He's the only one that can make purpose or sense out of something. And I had to continually give him my future. I don't know where this is going. Prison is right ahead of me. This family, this victim's family, I have to respond to them. And I had to keep giving it to God. And then I got to prison. And each day, as it would reset on me, I would, God, you know what's best. And I would give it to God. And it wasn't easy, but it was a decision. You either suffer through it or you suffer successfully through it. You get depressed through it or you allow it to push you forward through it. it I mean, a lot of people say, well, how did you do it? You make decisions, one decision on top of another. And then when that happened with Sarah, the, the relationship as it was birthed, that wasn't easy either. It was like, really? I'm looking out for her best interest. Why would I want to drag her into this situation? I would plead with her, please, like, there, here's a way out. I am not desperate whatsoever. We'll, we'll figure this out in the future. And there was this beautiful 
connection that no matter what we tried to do to walk away from it, God would kind of push us back toward each other. And that I think the beauty um, was us getting to know each other through those rough edges and through those difficulties. And and I just say to that person out there saying, well, that doesn't happen to me. That doesn't happen in everyday life. That is your story. And I say, no, that could be your story too. It starts with today. It starts with making a decision. It starts with trusting God with the unknown, knowing he has a perfect plan in everything that he allows to touch our life. I say often, and I say it again, if it's touched your life, it had to pass through the scarred hands of Jesus Christ. And I sit across a family who knows very well that when things go down and it's hard and there's tragedy, you serve a God who is willing to reach down from heaven and not make it all better in a day and and not change our circumstances, but he joins us in the trial. And that is a miracle. You make allusion to the fact that nothing happens to us by chance or fate or mistake. And friend, I want you to know that Mark Inc. Ministries believes that. In fact, our motto is that God is sovereign and you can trust him. And the first part is easy for Christians to say God is sovereign, but the difficulty comes when all hell breaks loose in our lives. Can we really trust him? Do you really believe that everything that's happened to you has been first filtered through his sovereign hands for a purpose, that nothing happens to us by chance or fate or mistake that isn't first passed through those hands? And I want to encourage you, if you're listening to this right now, and perhaps you're on the brink of making a very bad decision for your life, that uh, God has a very special and unique plan for you. He's put his fingerprints all over you. You were created in His image and likeness, and your identity is to be found in Him. We are here at Mark Inc. Ministries for that purpose, to offer help and hope to hurting people. And if you're struggling right now, if you're about to make a decision similar to what you heard Matt make, if you're about to take a step or move in a direction that you know is not right for you, are you willing to bear the consequences that come with it? Are you willing to bear the pain and the struggle and the sorrow that comes with it. Uh, you can find hope and you can find peace even in the midst of those kinds of trials, but it would be much better for you to follow his will and his purpose, uh, moving from point A to point B in a straight line and not some sort of jagged line. You exist for the purpose of bringing glory to God. The chief end of man is to bring glory to God. That's why we're here. And so I want you to listen very closely to what you heard Matt and Sarah say here and understand that this did not happen to them with some sort of rose-colored glasses on. They had to walk through some very, very painful, very difficult moments as the result of making that one bad decision. It's actually more than one bad decision. There's a series of heart issues that I think Matt has been very transparent about. So where is your heart today? Where are you? What, what is your relationship to Jesus Christ? He is the author and the finisher of your faith. And by his grace, he can redeem any pain you're going through right now, any sorrow. God can take and make beauty out of your ashes. And that is the prayer that Mark Inc. Ministries has. This moving and informative interview was produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. To contact Mark Inc. Ministries for more information on other resources, Call us toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462.
Visit us online at markinc.org to see what other free resources are available for Mark Inc. Ministries. Our message today comes from the Learning to See When the Lights Go Out series and is designed to offer help and hope to those who have been struck by the pain from a variety of sources. If you or someone you know or love is struggling, you are likely to find a Mark Inc. Ministries resource on that topic to offer a bit of hope to that pain. That website again is markinc.org. You can also contact Chuck and Sharon Betters in care of Mark Inc. Ministries at 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Mark Inc. Ministries, making abundant riches known in the name of Christ.